Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you're listening, you're listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on January 28th, 2021. Today in the show, I'm happy to announce blogger, author, and technocracy expert Patrick Wood. Patrick is known for his work exposing the plans of the upper classes as they continue to impose the use of technocracy, or the rule by science and technology, upon the mass of humanity. This iteration of human resource management, like any other form of slavery, strives to utilize the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies to achieve a type of social control never before conceived of by the autocrats of the past. Patrick's books, Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, and Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, elucidate the history of this movement and describe future plans that include total surveillance, loss of personal freedom, and transhumanism where compliant and augmented humans serve at the whim of a technocratic class. Though COVID has been used to accelerate the implementation of this new system of social control, and many are now becoming aware of the elite plans, Patrick has been warning of its coming for nearly two decades. Today on the program, we discuss the work of his mentor, Anthony Sutton, whose research in the 1970s and 80s drove a stake into the heart of the left-right paradigm by providing concise descriptions of how monopoly capitalists eventually invested in the rise of communism in Soviet Russia. Though typically we are taught that capitalism and communism are antithetical, Sutton's work clearly shows that monopolists will use whatever political muscle available to centralize the means of production under their control. Contrary to the notion that socialism and its consequent government controls protect us from the outrages of monopoly capitalism, Sutton's work clearly describes how monopolists use all forms of government power towards their own ends. Tune in as Patrick and I discuss how the very monopolists that socialists believe they are fighting in reality use socialism as a tool to enhance their ability to solidify control for the benefit of the few. Rather than viewing the left-right paradigm through the lens of competing ideologies, perhaps it is more appropriate to observe how it has been used as a tool for the upper classes to herd the masses towards the ultimate goal of the technocratic state, a goal that is quickly becoming the reality. Find out more about the work of Patrick Wood at www.technocracy.news. You can also learn about his efforts to advocate for our fight to freedom of speech, and think about donating to the cause at citizensforfreespeech.org. As always, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast if you like what you're hearing. We rely on listeners like you for distribution of this information. You can also go to www.theshiftnow.com for access to hours of free content, browse the bookstore, or subscribe for feature-length versions of the show. You can also sign up to the Shift with Doug McKenty Telegram channel for constant updates and news from outside the mainstream, or find us on your favorite social media platform. Please welcome Patrick Wood to the program. I'd like to thank him for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, the 68th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I am honored to be joined today by Patrick Wood. He has done uh, a lot of work concerning the notion of technocracy for quite a while now. He's, uh, you've probably been writing about it longer than uh, almost anyone else. Uh, he saw this coming from from many miles away, and he's been warning about about it for a long time. Uh, I do want I'm having him on specifically today because he is the mentee of a historian named Anthony Wood, who did a great amount of work in the 70s and 80s, uh, describing how Wall Street interacted uh, with uh, a lot of different systems of government internationally, and what. Uh, what he concluded is that Wall Street is just as comfortable working with communist countries or fascist countries or whatever kind of country they need to work with as long as they can get their hands on those resources. And he really eroded away this concept of the left-right paradigm. So many of us in, in America and around the world have been inundated. I mean, even in my education in college, my history education is very centered in the left-right paradigm. And we're taught that history moves in this dialectical methodology from capitalism to communism and that they are these opposing forces. But when you look at the real history of things, uh, you find something quite different. You find that these quote unquote capitalists are actually investing heavily in communist countries. And so I wanted to have Patrick on uh, to talk about uh, the work of Anthony Sutton and to, uh, to really dive deep into uh, this uh, historical evidence that that really um, whittles away the concept of the left-right paradigm in the real world. So thanks for coming on, Patrick. 
My pleasure. That's good. And <clears throat> by the way, it was uh, Professor Anthony Sutton, uh -huh. um, who was a great publisher. And we'll talk. I know we're going to talk about him, but uh, a lot of people know who he was. They remember he, he made quite a splash, I have to say. Just to kick things off, do you want to let people know a little bit about your history and then what you're doing now? Um, go ahead and tell people the websites that you're involved in and the work that you're doing. And then we'll we'll kick in with some of this more. Uh, sure. Absolutely. I, I started writing and researching back in the late 1970s, and I did get teamed up <clears throat> with the late Professor Anthony Sutton, who had just before that been a research fellow at the Hoover Institution for War, Peace, and Revolution at Stanford. And uh, he began to write about this group, elite group called the Trilateral Commission. He was doing research at the time, and and um, he had a reputation for being the kind of researcher that would never let go of a story. If he, if he like a bloodhound, right? If he, if he caught the scent, right, uh, he would never leave the hunt. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, his colleagues at the institution, affectionately called him the Hoover vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> play on words, right? Sure. Uh, but the Hoover vacuum cleaner. Had a had a habit of sucking up every every fact and piece of literature he'd get his hands on, mm -hmm. and that's what made him a great a great writer and a great contributor to the history of the last century. Honestly, uh, but I started writing with uh, Tony. He was um, on the rebound from having been thrown out of Hoover Institution, and we met up and began to talk about the story that we both saw. I was studying from a slightly different angle than he, uh, studying the Trilateral Commission at the time, in the particular its influence on the Jimmy Carter administration. And I was very concerned. But as a young guy, I didn't really get what was going on. I, I knew there was something very serious and big but I couldn't put my finger on it. I just didn't have the experience. And when I met Sutton, he already had broken the code, so to speak. He mm -hmm. knew what was going on. And so we teamed up to first write a newsletter on the Trilateral Commission, and we did. And then we produced two books out of it as well called Trilaterals Over Washington. And they became the definitive books and textbooks in some cases for classes in political science around the country. Uh, there was nothing else like it at the time, and there's only been a couple of books written about the Trilateral Commission since, um, but that's where I got my start, and Sutton was a bloodhound, um, guaranteed. He knew how to get stuff. He knew how to work the system. <clears throat> he wasn't happy about being thrown out of the academic institution because that's where the majority of his resources came from. Mm -hmm. uh, when you work for a place like Stanford um, or the Hoover Institution, you can call up any library in the world and get any book you want or any paper delivered to you, FedEx or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and they will. And, you, can, you know, you loan, borrow, whatever stuff back and forth. He lost all that access to the global academic research library. And so he was still pretty proficient about finding stuff out. And we got just about everything we needed to crack the Trilateral Commission. But the commission started out with their, their whole language at, at the start was to create a new international economic order that they said that all over their literature. And so my all of my research back then, writing and whatever was Sutton, was focused on trying to figure out what is this new international economic order? What's it going to look like? Who are they going to be the players? And are they just gaming the system maybe? Is that all they were going to do? Or is mm -hmm. it more than that? Were they really going to replace it with something new? And we didn't really answer those questions together and until I discovered um, historic technocracy about 15 years ago. It never really dawned on me what the rest of the story was. Yeah. But when I discovered it, I instantly knew. <laughs> like, I instantly right. knew this is it. And so I, do I dove into that. Sutton was passed by that time. But I dove into that research on, on techno historic technocracy. It took me all over the place. Um, you know, I went to the offices of Technocracy Incorporated, which up in Washington State, which are still there. And they gave me a bunch of information, original literature and DVDs and pictures and stuff like that of the technocracy movement from the 30s and 40s. And then um, I went up and spent, we found an archive of uh, all of the uh, papers that were 
generated in Canada. There was um, a movement all across Canada. There was uh, each province had its own leader of Technocracy Incorporated, and then there was a grand poobah over the whole thing. But before those old people died, they took everything to the University of Alberta, and they set up an archive, and they contributed all of their bo- you know papers, boxes, and everything. Uh, personal letters that were written back and forth and journals and pictures and newsletters. And um, I went up there, traveled up to Edmonton from Idaho at the time and spent uh, a week solid bringing out cart after cart with boxes on it of these, these papers. And I went through every single box and every single paper and every single picture, yeah. trying to find out what really happened back in the 1930s and 40s. And I did. Uh, but with that as a base, it gave me an understanding then of exactly what we were looking at. And this is back circa 2006, 2007. And uh, so we've moved forward from there. A lot of years have passed. Here we are in 2021. <laughs> Where does the time go? I don't know. Right. But, um, you know, the, everything is coming into view now. As I started speaking about it back in, in the 2008 to 7-8 time frame, everything that we talked about back then is now in clear view, right in front of us. It's in your face. And it's really odd that all the people that um, threw, kind of threw stones at me, when I first started talking about technocracy, you know, oh, that's just fantasy. That's, you know, that's out there. That's, you know, it's communism, baby. Don't you know that? <laughs> uh, and uh, it's just kind of odd. Those people are all circling back around to me now. So, you know, I think you had something there, didn't you? I said, yes, I did. You didn't listen to me. You people could have done something about it back then, but not now. It may be too late by and large. Right. It's, so been, uh, anyway. Well, I've been... I've been having a lot of conversations online about the Great Reset, and people still, uh, if they don't understand technocracy and they don't see the historical thread, they think, oh, you know, it just looks like this innocuous economic system, and it's just a new, you know, it's just a kind of a new way to use modern technology to, to use capitalism, and it looks great because they're talking about sustainable development and, you know, equity for all and all of these things. How do you respond to that? I mean, it's so hard to get people to like have it click. And as we then we can get into the history of it and you can define uh, how the lineage has progressed, uh, I would say, from even early the early Marxism days, 1850s or so. Yes. Yes. You know, it's, I've, I've kind of concluded <clears throat> you can't really convince anybody. You can't force anybody to believe something that they just will not accept. Sure. Um, so. I'm sensitive when I'm talking to people, at least one-on-one, if they're in that position where they just can't accept any other explanation, I just kind of work around it, try and give them enough in, enough seeds, maybe plant enough seeds that will get them to open their eyes at some point to see what's really going on. But, you know, at, at the risk of sounding egotistical, and that's not my intent at all, really it isn't, um, you cannot know what you do not know. <laughs> right. And a lot of people don't know a lot of stuff. And I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. So I, you know, I can't, I don't want to be too hard. <laughs> you know, I, I think but, that's why I want to enforce this. So many people are entrenched in this left-right paradigm. And, it, and, and even as you learn more information, if the paradigm that you hold on to, that you're clinging on to, can't adapt to the new information, then you, you're not flexible enough to see the bigger picture. And so breaking down this left-right paradigm and understanding that this is about, um, I guess when I think about it, I think about social engineering, you know, using quote-unquote science to engineer society, as opposed to the flip side where society could be created out of a, um, a self-organizing system based on individual personal choices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's difficult, I think, when you're talking to someone who's, who's that entrenched in that left-right paradigm, uh, because they can't, they just can't see the bigger picture, which is that these corporatists, these quote-unquote capitalists, have actually been working on, on this technocratic system or this scientific system of control for a long time. And they haven't, when you look at the information, they don't care if it's a communist system or a fascist system or a corporatist crony capitalist system, as long as they can 
implement social engineering to manage the human resources, which I think is how a lot of those members of the upper class feel about, you know, us working people, right? Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> and it has been completely outside um, national boundaries. Um, these, uh, the, this technocrat class of people that are operating in the world today, the, uh, amongst the global elite especially, um, they have no national loyalty whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And we're dealing with this in America right now. People look at Twitter and they, they curse Twitter for dropping the president. But they don't, they don't take into account Twitter as a global company. They, there are billions of people that use Twitter all over the planet. And it's not just us. This is so egocentric. It's mm -hmm. just, just pride. Oh, America's everything, you know. Know what? You know what? There's a whole world out there. And, and they're in the same boat we are. But these, these global hype, you know, big tech oligarchs at this point are calling the shots on what's going on in the global stage. They're controlling society all over the planet right mm -hmm. now. You know, it was interesting to me, there was an article I just net snagged today for technocracy.news <clears throat> that was about Vladimir Putin. Um, Putin has discovered that big tech is out to control society. That's his job, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's sensitive to this. I'm telling you, he, he, he knows when somebody's coming for his job. Yeah. He made a statement that just, I mean, I saw this and I, I said, yes, so finally, somebody has validated what I have been saying for a long time, mm -hmm. that politicians are the useful idiots of technocracy. Right. Putin says, and this is the headline of the story, Tech giants are becoming competitors to the nation state for control of society. Sure. How about that? That means somebody's recognizing that they're way up here and, you know, people are still thinking, you know, curse Twitter for banning the president. And they don't realize that these companies collectively are now controlling the global society and how people behave. That's so pretty dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And they've been doing this for a long time. The book that I read to prepare for this was uh, Dr. Sutton's work about um, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. He also wrote one about the rise of Hitler and how a lot of these guys paved the way for Hitler. And so um, I guess, you know, my working theory is actually that that the upper classes have these these monopolistic capitalists, if you will, probably since by the time of the Civil War, the time that Marx was writing in the 18, 1850s, um, they were already working on monopolizing resources really across the planet. And they didn't care how they did it, right? I mean, that's the thing that comes across in the books is that they're not concerned about... Uh, uh, living in a free society or how the working class is treated or providing individual rights to, to human beings, they're comparing different economic systems and seeing how much they can extract from those systems. So, you know, my theory has, has developed, and I, I think you'll agree, but I want to talk about this a little more in depth, right. that basically you can look at the 20th century as this group of Wall Street capitalists, if you will, these monopolistic capitalists, um, not advocating for a free market by any means, but actually advocating for monopoly control over the resources of, of the planet, essentially. We're, we're experimenting with different social systems to see which one could be most extractive for them. And they had no ideological issue with uh, the Bolshevism, communism that was coming up in, in the Soviet Union at the time. And I feel like at the same time, they were experimenting with fascism, they were experimenting with social democracy in Europe, and, um, and these were all just different methodologies of control so that they could discover which method would be the most easily uh, manipulated for their purposes, which is extracting as much as they can off the top of really the entire economic system. Um, and so now we've got to this point, I, and from my research and my interpretation where the Chinese model is actually working really well for them. This kind of blend of, of quote unquote capitalism with a very strong state control, 
people still want to call it communism, but it's very different from any kind of, you know, it's not talking about the workers owning the means of production here and everybody getting a piece of the action, right? And they want to see the rest of the world uh, transform into something more like the Chinese system. Uh, And then, of course, on top of that, we've got the 5G and the new technology of the Internet coming through that um, they're manipulating to have even even a higher level of control than they've ever been able to achieve before. So will you discuss this, this concept that, uh, you know, these these this elite class is not, uh, you know, it's not capitalism versus communism. It's always just been them kind of pulling our chains and figuring out how to extract the most as they possibly can from the rest of the population. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah, Sutton actually wrote uh, two books on the rise of something. The rise of the Bolshevik Wall Street and the uh, Bolshevik Revolution was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also wrote Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. It's another book predicated on the same thing. Mm-hmm. Both of those books were sort of a an overview rehash of his earlier works as a scholar at Hoover that were collectively called, I think there's three volumes of it, The Transfer of Technology from the West to the East, which really was such a comprehensive thing. You can get those books still in rare bookstores. Mm -hmm. You're lucky if you snag even one of them for less than 500 bucks right now. I happen to have a series of them myself. I will never part with them. (laughs) Uh, But they they were absolutely definitive. And then, so he kind of popularized that deep research into... Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the rise of or the Bolshevik Revolution. If I could impersonate Sutton, which I won't do, but if I could, if I could somehow put on a mask and be Sutton for a while, I would write a book called Wall Street and the Rise of China. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's the same thing. It's the same game. Same game. And uh, so if, if having said that, you know, let's just talk about China for a minute, how China got to where it is today. Back in 2000, or excuse me, back in 1973, when Zbigniew Brzezinski got together with uh, David Rockefeller to form the Trilateral Commission, New International Economic Order, um, Brzezinski came from Columbia University. That's where technocracy started, 1932. Mm-hmm. And he was a prof- uh, professor of political science there. He, he was considered brilliant. Uh, he was a brilliant man, maybe evil, but brilliant. Um, great strategist, um, evil, but great strategist. <laughs> um, you wish he was working for on our side, not his. Right. But when the Trilateral Commission stacked the Carter administration with members, with its members, at one point, all but one of the cabinet positions were members of the Trilateral Commission, as was Brzezinski, of course, and as was Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale. They were all members of the same group. This is what got me started originally, by the way. Mm-hmm. What, this isn't right. Something's wrong with this picture. Well, <clears throat> um, Zbigniew Brzezinski worked on top of an effort started by Henry Kissinger working for Nixon. Kissinger was one of the early founding members, too, of the Trilateral Commission. So it's a cozy little relationship here. Kissinger made an illegal trip to China when it was illegal to go to China. It's a secret trip. And when he got back, he took a bunch of heat for it, for having even gone without advising Congress and the State Department. <laughs> he just went. And he was the first one to start what we call the thaw of relationship with China. Mm -hmm. And China looked at the time a lot like North Korea looks today. It wasn't just a bankrupt nation. It was a train wreck, basically. It was just horrible, oppressed, not just oppressive. It was just an economic, you know, disaster. They knew nothing about free market economics. They were coming literally out of straight communism, harsh, harsh communism, where millions of people, tens of millions of people were killed by their own government. So when Kissinger said, come back in to the world stage, that set the stage for Brzezinski to complete the act by inviting Chairman Deng 
over to, that's there was the president of China at the time, over to the United States, Washington. Uh, Brzezinski was national security advisor. He invited him over and they normalized relations with China, where China could be brought back into the global economic stage. What most people didn't know at the time, and you know, I, I look back on this, and Sutton and I wrote about this quite a bit. What people didn't know when they brought China back in, officially, is that several global corporations that were connected to the Trilateral Commission, like, for instance, members of the board or the chairman of the board belonged to the Trilateral Commission, companies had already been doing developmental work in China. You could just see the claws were just, the talons were just coming out to right. grab that baby and we're going to do something with it. I know now looking back that Brzezinski did not teach communist China at the time the principles of free market economics. He didn't. He taught them the principles of technocracy. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. And so Chairman Deng went back and he did his thing and reform started to kick in and that all is history now and can be discovered. But what wasn't really ever put out in the history books, it's there, we wrote about it. Companies like Bechtel Engineering, for instance, the, the largest construction firm and private construction firm in the world at the time, the chairman of Bechtel, Casper Weinberger, was a member of the Trilateral Commission based in Northern California. At the time that Brzezinski made it legal, in a sense, to bring China back in, because they were our sworn enemy one time, at that time, by that time he had done this, we discovered that Becker, Tony did mostly, not me, mm -hmm. that Bechtel Engineering had executed 18 huge infrastructure projects in China. They'd already done it. Right. Nobody knew it. They just, their private company, they didn't have to file anything. They just went over and did it. Already building up the infrastructure to establish manufacturing plants and get ready for the John Deere's and the Caterpillar tractors and, you know, all these other companies to come in with their big gun investments and stuff to build plants over there. And, uh, the economic, the quote-unquote economic miracle that people talk about that took place in China was no miracle at all. It was merely just the, these global corporations, multinational corporations with Wall Street money, they flooded China with projects and money. Boom. There's no miracle here. At all. The Chinese did not come up with some new idea. Oh, we, we've invented something new here, you know? Not at all. The miracle was a fraud, and it was only the fact that Wall Street was pumping investment money and these corporations' development projects into China, and all of a sudden, China took off. It became an engineered society. The entire economic program was engineered, if you will, the science of social engineering applied to the corporate world as well. Mm -hmm. And so 2000, by the time 2002 rolls around, that was 20, what, uh, 73, 1893, 30 years later, Time Magazine, which was one of the original media uh, organizations that were invited to belong, belong to the Trilateral Commission, it was Hedley Donovan, actually. It was exec, uh, the executive um, editor, whatever, of uh, Time magazine. And he was a member. And Time was uh, uh, with the other, I think there were a total of six media giants at the time that belonged to the Trilateral Commission. Essentially, they had a gag order. You know, don't talk about what we talk about in our meetings. Right. You can come to our meetings, but shut your mouth. <laughs> we, don't, you, we don't want you to tell anybody else what we were really talking about. By the time 2002 rolled around, an article appeared in Time magazine called The Revenge of the Nerds. When I ran across that article, because the title was had nothing to do with technocracy, but I ran across this article somewhere, and I about dropped my, I mean, my eyeballs just popped out of my head. Mm -hmm. Because the article talked about technocracy in its historic context from 1932. 
this is what China had done. And they said the revenge of the nerds meant the, the theme was that um, the communist government, I say in quotes, um, was replaced by not politicos, but by scientists and engineers. And they said the whole lot of them now are scientists and engineers. They're running the country like, you know, like technocracy. Sure. They said this is where it came from. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what, you know, all the evidence around it. But when I saw that article where they themselves were admitting what had happened in China, they seeded China with technocracy, the principles of technocracy. Right. And we're seeing that today. And in the intervening, now what, 40 plus years, the money from Wall Street and other global banks and stuff have poured into China by the truckload, by the train load, by the plane load, by just massive amounts of money. And they have developed China into the powerhouse it is today to where China is now exporting its technocracy to other nations all over the planet. They've infiltrated uh, and impacted South America, countries, virtually every country in South America, mm -hmm. all of, virtually all of the African countries, They've got the, all of the Mideast, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, UAE, completely excited about technocracy right. principles. And, of course, the other nations in Asia. You've got Japan. You've got South Korea. You've got um, Malaysia. Those nations have been infiltrated now with the principles of technocracy. So they've used this, this, this global cartel, whatever you call it, that mm -hmm. started in 73, they have expanded their influence through China while calling, all along, while calling China our enemy. Right. This is the way they've always done it. This is what Sutton broke back, <laughs> way back in, you know, in the 50s and 60s with his work. Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, Wall Street and the rise of Bolshevism is he describes how they will fund both sides, and then they'll fund both sides even in the in propaganda within the United States, yes. um, so that people are like fighting each other, and they think this other system is their enemy, and they're promoting this concept of the left-right paradigm, and it like it takes everybody's eye off the ball, and they're not really seeing that the people at the top of the pyramid, the top of the corporate cartel are constantly playing both sides so that they can ultimately implement this uh, this yeah. technocratic, quote-unquote, scientific methodology of, uh, of centralized control of, of the economies worldwide, which right. even then I, I equate it, and I, I, you know, you go back through the history of the corporate cartel, I think it starts... Uh, in feudal Europe, this the corp the early corporations like the East India Trading Company were the first transnational corporations that were funding colonization, and now we're seeing this corporate system literally completing that that job of colonizing the world under this this rubric of technology of technocracy. So it's, yes. it's fascinating to 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 see this this paradigm, when you start looking through the lens of technocracy, like you're saying, it's the string that connects all of this together, going back for hundreds of years uh, and all the way to the present day. And all of this, the rest of this, communism versus capitalism, the left-right paradigm, yada, yada, is just always been a distraction while these guys continue to nab cheap resources, to control governments, to centralize control all over the world for their own massive profits. And while the rest of us are being scientifically managed, socially engineered through this yeah. technocratic system. Yes, exactly. And the other, <clears throat> the other thing that I've written about with alongside of technocracy is the concept of transhumanism. Right. And <clears throat> I have said, since both of these are based on um, a, kind of a religious proposition called scientism, um, I have stated for a long time that transhumanism is to people what technocracy is to society. In other words, uh, transhumanism creates citizens that are appropriate to live in a technocracy, if that, that may be a better way to understand it. Sure. So you see a Klaus Schwab of the world at the World Economic Forum openly talking about transhumanism now and creating humans 2.0. Right. The guy's a class A1 transhuman. He's also a class A1 technocrat. They, they blend together like this now. And this is, 
this has never really been revealed publicly uh, by a leader like a Klaus Schwab, for instance. I've talked about it, but you know who the heck am I? Nobody listens to me <laughs> necessarily. But now the dots are being connected by they themselves. That, that that transhumanism is also going to be an expression of technocracy as we take over the world. These people literally want to take over management of all living things. Mm -hmm. This has never really been in the crosshairs before all living things it's just staggering um the implications of this to mankind because for instance now that science has advanced to the point where you have crispr technology to do genetic editing on things you have gmo food you know seeds you have uh, uh by monsanto for instance in bayer you have uh gmo animals by a number of companies that are uh, genetically engineering animals for one thing or another you have um uh genetically modified uh, food. They're growing meat now in laboratories. Uh, they're uh, just recently discovered they're growing wood now in library in uh, laboratories, thinking that, hey, we can do better than the forest. You know, why, why cut the trees down in the forest? We could just do it right here in the old laboratory. Right. Um, and now with the new addition of MN, the new vaccines that are coming out based on messenger RNA, they're intending to change the genetic structure of humans. This is the transhuman goal from a long time back as to uh, even before they had the ability to edit the genetic of uh, the genome, it's been um, almost a, a metaphysical thing before about 1995, but transhumanism proposes to escape death and to allow people to be immortal and omniscient as well, but plugged into the, you know, Google or whatever. And, um, you know, you look at people talking about this stuff and you think, this is really unplugged. You know, this is just nothing that we should be messing with, you know, messing with the core of life itself. Mm -hmm. These technocrats are bent on creating a scientific dictatorship where the world essentially is created, is run by algorithm. And that is AI now. <clears throat> and that the humans that will live in that society will be genetically modified, genetically engineered to take all of the bad characteristics away from humans, like the, you know, being argumentative and sometimes hostile to people, stuff like that. And right. to put other qualities right. into them, you know, like take away their moral meter and stuff so that they don't get so excited when, you know, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes in society. Right. Right. They really believe this stuff. This is the problem. It's like, how can somebody that's in a position to do something about it believe something so twisted that nobody will believe what they're saying? Yeah. They can read what they're saying. They don't believe it. I've seen people do this. I've shown them the paper. Here, I'm, said, here. I'm and actually, I'm actually, well, excuse me, but I'm actually, I'm producing a, a psychology of lockdown series right now where we're going through why people experience such cognitive dissonance when you're showing them the, the white papers and the peer-reviewed papers and the corporate documents that are showing this is what's in the works. This is what these guys are working on. And they're just like, no, no, you know, I'm going to vote for Biden or whatever. Right. I mean, they just, it's, it's outrageous what we're dealing with because people have been trained. I mean, personally, I think there's already been so much social engineering going on that people have already been trained into a kind of like uh trance, like, state of of following the authority without really being able to think critically and certainly not wanting to think critically about the authority you know if the government if the dr fauci says then it must be true and if you don't say what dr fauci says you're spreading misinformation i mean that's the world we're living in right now and a lot of people just believe that and when you try to show them scientific information uh, or, you know, primary source information that is different from that belief system, they can't go there. They get triggered and suddenly, you know, they're not, they're in fight or flight mode and they're not thinking clearly anymore. So it's, it's unfortunate. Um, I just want to, I did want to kind of mention, like, I think that, um, when, when I think about technocracy and what's coming, uh, it's like there was, I. It, it, this is a slave management system, right? I mean, I want to kind of, when you talk about transhumanism, they want to do, they, they want to eliminate the aggressive tendencies, like the tendency to want to be free, you know, <laughs> to disagree with the authority figures. And they're going to do it 
uh, with pharmaceutical drugs, but also with with technical technological implants, uh, just to calm us down and get us to do the work and get us to follow the system that they want us to follow. And it, it's a slave society. I have the argument that in the 20th century, I think you'll probably agree there was this fiat currency debt slavery system where we all, you know, are borrowing money to live our lives and then we're paying the money off with interest and there they, it creates this um, this scarcity in the currency supply and then we're all competing against each other because some people have to lose and, and be impoverished if they don't, you know. So we're fighting with each other in this way. That was a debt-based slavery system, but now we're moving into this new technocratic, more technocratic-based mm-hmm. slavery system where we're just gonna be do- directly plugged in Yes. And every, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Alison McDowell, but she goes pretty deeply into um, how, well, why don't we, why don't we actually take a step back? Cause I wanted to get through this with you. What I perceive is that, you know, these people, when you, when I try to think like these guys, I have unlimited funds and I have unlimited power and I consider the rest of humanity as some kind of a, you know, a herd slave worker class that I have to manage. Um, and I am, you know, I'm not emotionally attached. I think it's a psychopathic mentality or a narcissistic mentality these people have, especially when it comes to the lower classes. They feel themselves so superior. And then they think, well, I can hire the best scientists to manage my herd of humans, uh, you know. And and even in the early days of Marxism, I mean, Marxism called it scientific socialism. He wanted to use this. He wanted to have a scientifically... Uh, centrally controlled, engineered society that determined exactly how much everyone, uh, the value of every product, the value of every worker, the the value of every labor laborer's hour of work, and they they you know even um, I've heard stories when the Soviet Union collapsed that some Western economists went to went to Moscow to see how they were managing their economy. And it was just reams and reams of papers, stacks and stacks of them trying to come up with the algorithms that could properly control uh, the entire economy. And, um, and so the point being is I think these guys were attracted to communism initially because it gives them total control. They can use science to have total control over uh, the working class and it just and it just didn't work. They just couldn't do it. They didn't have the computing power. They didn't have the entire control. The human impulse for freedom was just too much. There were black markets springing up all over the place. You know, um, there was a free market underbelly that they couldn't control. And because they failed at it, you'd see these massive collapses, like in the Soviet Union or like in uh, China, as you described in the in the fifties and sixties when they were trying the same hardcore engineered scientifically engineered system it didn't work so then and i think at the same time then they're experimenting with fascism which is essentially takes little tidbits of the free market and incorporates it into the government system and the information that the free market in terms of of um the the uh, especially i think the pricing mechanisms that the free market allows the supply of when the supply of 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 uh, of supply and demand, when the law of supply and demand is allowed to operate, right? You don't have to have all this computing power. There's some pricing that happens that can regulate things naturally. So I think they're fine. They found that a combination of the two, they needed a little bit of free market action to happen um, on on within the context of this centrally controlled system, this central planning uh, system that they prefer because it gives them more power and control. Um, and I think it almost like that's got to be frustrating to these guys. I think that this, what we're seeing now with the Great Reset then, and they still seem to be having, and that's what I, I was going to refer to Alison McDowell's work. She's been talking a lot about these social impact bonds uh, that are coming. It appears that there's going to be basically an underclass, the working class that's within this technocratic surveillance state. All of our data is on blockchain. Uh, the AI is using the algorithms and the upper class will literally have commodities exchanges, uh, these social impact bonds and these these uh, like commodity exchanges where they're profiting off of you know, like betting on how well they can control these algorithms and these control mechanisms. 
that are going to be applied to the to the underclass. And so there's still, you know, like it seems like, I mean, that's why Klaus Schwab, I think, calls it stakeholder capitalism. Like it's a new kind of capitalism. It has these elements of the free market in it. Um, but then the underclass is, as you described, just basically, it's basically using a little tidbit of free market action to, uh, to control, you know, the lower classes using this technocratic system. Do you want to comment on that? I will say <clears throat> about Klaus Schwab that if, no matter what he says, you still have to uh, take it, well, let's say trust but verify. If you, if you take uh, every, everything he says back to the United Nations uh, with their so-called sustainable development goals, mm -hmm. that was part of the 2030 agenda that was passed a few years ago uh, by the nations of the world by treaty, um, <clears throat> all of the goals initially of the first few goals are all very altruistic, like eliminate poverty everywhere. Who could argue with that? Right. Uh, jobs with dignity for everyone who could argue with that. <laughs> and, he's, you know, you get hearty assent to all of the, you know, yeah, man, mm -hmm. that, that would really be good for society. If you could do that, go do it. And everybody gives assent. But when you get down into the, the deeper parts of the, sustainable development agreement or uh, the the goals and read down in the text that they have underneath each goal because there was quite a bit of text added to it not just a bullet point you find out in the fine print that the only thing you have to do in order to get the promises that they offer is to turn over all the resources of the world to them right <laughs> that's the equation and it's right there in black and white if anybody just go read it the devil is always in the details. So when Klaus Schwab says something like, um, "Well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have stakeholder stakeholder capitalism," that mm -hmm. okay? Well, everybody says, "Oh, capitalism." I know what that is. That's like what we have now. Yeah, okay. Stakeholder. Right. It's going to be a little different, but basically, it's capitalism. Mm -hmm. You go look at the United Nations. It's not capitalism at all. There's <laughs> nothing to do with it. It's so radically overboard that if they could implement it just right now, that pushing a button, um, the world would be in a state of shock for the next 20 years. <laughs> How do we get here? How do we get into this situation? It's a radical, radical system. And so people like the Klaus Schwab uh, will make it more palatable to people as they use the terms that people will relate to. Sure. People just don't relate to the concept of sustainable development. They truly don't. But when you say stakeholder capitalism, it's a bridge term. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I kind of understand what he's saying, but you really don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he will change it. In fact, they've changed their narrative so many times already. It's not even funny. These were the people that used to call me and uh, Tony and I conspiracy theorists. Sure. Back in the 70s, 80s, same people called us conspiracy theories for writing about their own publications, right? And they were very successful at it. <laughs> they really got us, you know, censored. But now these same people are coming out openly talking about their plans to reset the global economic system. And they have to make it palatable, like just like the United Nations always leads with eliminate poverty everywhere. If you want to have any concluding remarks, and, and then again, maybe say the, the websites uh, for technocracy.news and the, and the free. free. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, exis the existential threat to the world is technocracy, to civilization as we know it. The existential threat to the United States near term is the destruction of our ability to communicate. That's what the First Amendment is all about. If they are successful, if these technocrats are successful about killing our ability to communicate, we're done. This is how every revolution has been executed in modern history. They go for the radio stations, the TV stations, and the newspapers, and anybody else in media. They shut them down summarily. Sometimes they shoot them, <laughs> they have in the past. Mm -hmm. And then they take over the media for propaganda, and nobody is able to figure out what's going on after that. There's no communication. If we lose our First Amendment rights in America, we're done. That's just that simple. 
we may only have a year or two to put up a line of defense to keep our ability to communicate. So I say this is the existential threat near term. Technocracy is the existential threat medium term. And most of the world is already captured by it, unfortunately. Most of the world is going along with it, but with noted exceptions in Germany and France and Great Britain and other, other countries in Europe. So <clears throat> we have a huge task ahead of us. I, I urge anybody listening to this, if, if you're especially if you're from, from America in particular, mm -hmm. get on board with Citizens for Free Speech. It doesn't cost a nickel to join. You can volunteer if you want to dig deeper to get into some of our programs that we'll help you with to get into your local communities and stuff. But this is what we need to do right now. And America needs to rise up to preserve communication and to keep the lines of communication open, even if you're talking to somebody that does not agree with you or that you don't agree with them. We need to learn how to be statesmen to return the art of civic, civic discourse to our communities, period. And we're working hard at that. I, I've just thrown, kind of thrown most all of my effort into, into making this work. And our membership is just growing so fast. It's unbelievable around the country right now. This, this whole COVID thing just exploded our membership. And it's still growing. And I'm just, uh, I'm dedicated for the next six months to be on as many media programs as I can to tell the American people, wake up, folks, come with us, come join us to preserve free speech. Well, sounds good, Patrick. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll do what I can to help spread the word as well. Maybe I'll have you back on the show in a couple of months. If you're doing a lot of media, then uh, I'd be really happy to promote because it's super important. Yeah. Super important to get people outside of the left-right paradigm to start to see the bigger picture of how these corporate monopolists have been, have been working for a long yeah. time, at least 100 years, maybe hundreds of years. Uh, we can see this lineage and how it works. We can see how technocracy is the string that weaves the whole philosophy of control together. And we see what's coming. And I'm 100% behind you. If we lose our ability to speak and to speak out against it, well, then the fight is lost. So it's got to be, that's where the front line is right now. And, and I, again, really want to thank you for doing that work to try to preserve those First Amendment freedoms. You're welcome. I'll just take a second to let everyone know that you've been listening to The Shift, and I'm your host, okay. Doug McKinty. You can find out more about The Shift at uh, www.theshiftnow.com. I've got a lot of uh, free content out there. You can please think about subscribing to the newsletter, and then I'll get you updated as uh, new news and information and interviews like this one come out. Um, I'm also on social media. If you look up uh, Doug McKinty or The Shift with Doug McKinty, you'll be able to find me. Uh, all around the internet, trying to do what I can to uh, get better at distributing these podcasts, especially in the age of shadow banning and censorship. So uh, if you feel up for it, please uh, like and share what you're listening to so uh, that you can do your part because it's listeners like you that are helping to uh, to get the word out there. It's not really happening. The algorithms aren't really kind to to those of us who are talking about things like this these days. So Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, thank you very much, Patrick, for participating in the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Patrick Wood. I've been really wanting to have that conversation for a long time, and I was really excited that Patrick uh, would come on. It's um, a realization that I came to some years ago, that the left-right paradigm was something that was actually being used by the technocratic class. Uh, the upper class, to essentially herd the rest of us in the direction that they want us to go. Um, while we're all taught this typical Hegelian slash Marxist dialectical thinking in terms of history that, that the thesis of capitalism and the antithesis of communism are going to end up fighting each other and end up creating a, a synthesis of a new way, um, this is not what I think is actually going on in reality. I think what's really happening is that the upper classes use both monopoly capitalism, uh, really national socialism or, or fascism, this corporatist state, 
and they contrast it with uh, socialism or communism as if somehow they're competing against each other. Uh, but in reality, both are just systems of social control, and either one we choose is for the benefit uh, of these upper classes that are controlling everything from above. Yes, that's the conspiracy theory, right? That rich people collude to increase their own power and wealth. I don't think that that is a, really a shock to certainly anyone who's listening to this program, though it seems like most most people somehow have a problem with that notion. Um, but I wanted to have Patrick on to help uh, dispel this myth, and I got the opportunity to read the anti-Anthony Sutton work, um, Wall Street and the Rise of Bolshevism, which showed just exactly how much money and time was spent um, pouring into the Bolshevik Revolution in order to help those guys win and make sure that when they did win, that the, the capitalist class uh, in Wall Street had a lot of power and leverage and sway so that they could gain access to all those Russian resources and help to build the Russian economy, which then they went on to do in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, even though Americans were taught that there was this Cold War and these two competing systems. When we really look into it, there was a lot of Wall Street money going in there and being invested in, uh, in communist Russia and taking those resources and controlling, using the communist system to control uh, the means of production. And so it's my hope that as we listen to more and more of this, we can start to shed this feeling of this dialectical progression of history. First of all, uh, I would describe that as very linear. Um, it's a patriarchal concept of history. Um, these characteristics, I can't, I'm not going to go too much into detail, but you know, a matriarchal system uh, or a natural system or a more indigenous way of thinking includes uh, the cycles of nature. Um, and so their calendars reflect this, our linear calendar, the Gregorian calendar that we all use is linear, and we have this Hegelian dialectic, and this is how we all think about history. And, and my, uh, my theory, and I was really happy to hash this out with Patrick, uh, is that uh, the elite actually use this, this linear thinking that we all have to think that someday in the future, you know, we're going to continue to progress uh, until we re achieve this ultimate uh, utopian state, uh, which is technocracy. And of course, their plan is that the upper classes will have all the control and the lower classes will be uh, well uh, confined to a state of complacency. And it will be very challenging to try to kind of break outside of this system, have individual thoughts, <laughs> individual freedom, uh, and certainly have any kind of control over the direction that our family goes in or our community um, or our culture at large. So, you know, hopefully some of this information uh, helped to dispel this idea that history has to progress forward in this way and that somehow it's done via this left-right paradigm. Um, switching over, especially in reading the book by Anthony Sutton, you really get the sense that there's more of a, a utilitarian nature to what's going on in the mind of the elites, and I think of it really even as a post-Nietzschean uh, version of thinking about history that's a little bit more realistic, where these guys are just out for power. They want to have power and control, they want to control the culture, they want to engage in social engineering, and they want to engineer the culture to be uh, essentially complacent, uh, a complacent slave class that they can use uh, to produce whatever it is that they want to produce, whatever technologies they feel like they want or they need. Um, and the rest of us are just designed to work for them. And um, I think if we take this approach, if we understand that history is not being driven forward in this kind of directed way through this dialectic, but it's really just a bunch of rich guys who are pushing us around, then we can start to take a step back and come up with a different way of thinking. And, you know, again, I would argue that this different way maybe goes as far as to even break down our the way that we think about history and the progress of history uh, and start thinking more in terms of the natural cycles, uh, the yearly cycles, the cycles of the season, and even as in uh, the Mayan or the, the Hindu calendar or the traditional Chinese calendar where we're thinking in, in greater cycles uh, of the solar system traversing around the galaxy. 
if we have uh, more of an understanding that history kind of unfolds in this way and isn't directed by this kind of dialectical progress of, of civilization towards a more technocratic state, maybe we'll have a mindset of getting away from the, the left-right paradigm, fighting each other over which system is best ultimately for the upper classes and not for us, and in the spirit of bottom unity, actually start to unite against what's going on uh, and start to have some say in how our communities are going to look and how our family life and you know how our education systems and how our healthcare systems and all of this are going to look in the future rather than sitting back and uh, waiting for the elite class to tell us what they have in store for us. So um, I thought this was a really good way to kind of express some of these ideas. I mean, we didn't really talk about the historiosity aspect, but just the practicality of how the elite use both sides of the left-right paradigm to achieve their goals. And the fact that they don't care if it's a communist government or a national socialist government or a democratic socialist government or a corporate capitalist, crony capitalist system, as long as they can use a government to centralize the means of production, then that's what they're going to do. Um, and this very practical, this very utilitarian way of analyzing what's going on to separate us out of this constant conflict where the socialists really think they're fighting the, the capitalists and that the capitalists are advocating for something that's going to give more control to the elite, but socialism is the solution. And through, you know, the government kind of laying down boundaries on what the capitalists are allowed to do, this is the, this is the sort of the ideal system. And what I've been thinking a lot about lately, actually, you guys, is that uh, when socialists are thinking along these lines or progressives or whatever, they're really never doubting the corporate system. The, even in social democracy, right? The government, places that have that have universal health care, the government is forcing everyone to buy big pharma products, and big pharma products make a killing in those in those states. I mean, they don't have the insurance companies taking their cut. That's true, but people still pay a lot in taxes, and they're. In, and, and the big pharma system of medicine is imposed upon them. It's not like they have healthcare freedom, and it's not like the corporations are, are hurting for money in those countries. Um, they're still making a hefty, hefty profit because they've got a captive market. The government has now forced everyone to participate in the corporate system. And so it's just interesting. Also interesting that people then, you know, for example, who argue for Medicare for all, uh, they don't realize that they're actually advocating for this blend of corporate and government power. No one's ever talking about the government producing the means of production. The corporations are still powerful, and a system of corporate and government partnership working together in this way is actually called fascism. Like, why do we all call that socialism? Why do people consider that to be progressive when this is clearly the definition of fascism, and this is what's going on, and ultimately it just gives the corporate system more and more control, which is, I would argue, by design. So I hope that you take away from this conversation that historically we can clearly see the monopoly capitalists have used communism, have used socialism, they use all of these different isms to herd us ultimately towards the system of total control, and as technology evolves, now we've got 5G online, Robot-to-robot uh, -robot communication is starting to happen. They're going to be replacing a lot of our labor with robot labor, so they're and they're they're transitioning uh, their system of human resource management to include the new tech. And this is going to be a hyper technocratic system. It's clearly in the works. I've done multiple interviews on it now, and so if we don't get together and say this is not the system that we want for our future, we would like to be a free people able to choose our own futures for our family and for our communities, then this is what we're going to get. And so I really appreciated Patrick coming on. He's working right now really hard on this Citizens for Free Speech endeavor, citizensforfreespeech.org, and I urge people to really check that out. Think about maybe making a donation because, um, as he told me after the interview, once we lose our freedom of speech, it's game over. There's no way to stop it. They're going to be able to do it. And clearly, as we've all witnessed over the last year, we've seen a super attack on uh, our ability to um, speak freely in this country. Uh, we've seen over the last decade the consolidation of social media into big tech giants. And then now those tech giants have uh, enough consolidation in that market to essentially control uh, which social media platforms can live or die. 
and uh, you know mon monopoly capitalism at its finest. So um, if we want to um, continue to be able to have these conversations outside of the mainstream, then we're going to need to keep uh, working with Patrick and people like him to promote uh, freedom of speech. And speaking of that, if you like what you're hearing, please like, share, uh, and subscribe. Send this out to all your social media platforms because as the social, the shadow banning and the uh, and the censorship has picked up. Uh, I am leaning on people like you to distribute this podcast. So if you like it, please share it. Um, and I'll just let you know that if you want to find out more, you can also find all of my podcasts. I've got the roundtable discussions up there, lots of great stuff. Um, plus uh, an older podcast I did on local radio called the Thursday Morning Report, going back ten years of material which you can find under the free content tab at www.theshiftnow.com. I just started a new uh, Telegram channel, so I'm letting everybody know about that. It'll be a place where I can really keep in touch. I'm posting um, a lot of articles and a lot of ideas about interviews that I could have and keeping everybody there informed as to who I'm going to be interviewing in the future. We can have a conversation. You can talk with me about the uh, angle you want me to take or the kind of questions you want me to ask. So hopefully I'll see you there. Um, and of course, uh, you can find me on all your, all the social media platforms that are out there right now. I think I'm working on 10 or 11. Uh, I just, uh, started up on brand new tube, but of course I'm also on YouTube and Facebook at the shift with Doug McKinty on Twitter at D McKinty. Um, but you'll find me on a lot of different social media platforms these days. So thanks again, everybody for listening. Um, I don't have another one lined up actually for next week. Um, I am looking to get somebody to come on to talk about pathogenic priming or this, what they call anti antibody dependent enhancement. Um, and hopefully uh, I'll be able to find somebody that wants to do an interview that can really get into that in terms of the vaccine, um, and some of the dangers that are associated, uh, with, uh, with the mRNA vaccines. So we'll try to keep you informed about that. I'm also thinking about asking somebody to come on to talk about the election, uh, just because as giving a voice to the voiceless, um, I think there was at least some evidence, uh, of election tampering, and I'd like to go over it with somebody that, uh, really took a deep dive into it and let y'all know what the other side of the coin is from what you're hearing from, uh, the mainstream media all over, uh, all over the place. So thanks again for checking this one out. And, uh, I will, uh, talk to you again very soon. We'll have another one posted. I'll have another one posted next week for sure. So, uh, you all take care. <laughs>